In this episode of the Raised with Jesus podcast, we are featuring one of two episodes on the seven words from the cross from the St. Andrew Lutheran Church podcast, Impact. You can find out more in the show notes. Here goes. Welcome to Impact, the podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers that will help you better understand Scripture so it will have a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the Staff Minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Hi everyone, it's good to be here with you and with the precious Word of God which serves as a lamp to our feet and a light on our path. Let's begin with a prayer. Dear Lord, you are our rock and our fortress, our guide, and our only hope. Look on us as we open your word and plant that truth deep in our hearts. Amen. So welcome back, folks. We're going to get right to it. Part two of Jesus speaking from the cross, the seven words from the cross. I'm with Professor Steve Geiger from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Welcome back. Thank you. We'll pick it up here with uh, word number three or statement number three. Uh, This is recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus' uh, tender words here from the cross, spoken to his mother and then to his disciple. He says, woman, speaking to his mother Mary, here is your son, referring to John. And then he says to his apostle John, here is your mother. So this is from the Apostle John, Professor. Uh, First, uh, very quickly on that phrase that he likes to use, the Apostle whom Jesus loved. What what does he mean by that? So that phrase occurs earlier in the Gospel of John as well, the one who is sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper. And the presumption is that this descriptor was John's way of not having to say his own name in his Gospel, perhaps to not draw you know, attention to himself, even though he would say, I don't know that that would have been wrong at all, but he just chooses to speak about that close relationship that Jesus had a, you know, a true appreciation um, uh, for this, this particular disciple. It seems pretty clear from scripture, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that um, Mary, Joseph had other sons besides Jesus, that Jesus had brothers. Is that, is that fair to say? It is. Um, there are some who would say that they have to be his cousins, not brothers, and that the Greek word could theoretically keep the door open for that, which is kind of hard to say. I don't know if you'd say it's absolutely impossible, but it would be very not normal. And then there are others who say they had to have been Joseph's sons from a previous marriage. And really all of these, all of these proposals sort of find their basis in a desire to have Mary remain a virgin for her entire life. And there's, because there's nothing in the scripture that speaks of that in any regard, our presumption is that they functioned as a normal man and wife, which meant you do not um, keep yourself from your spouse, except for a time of prayer, perhaps. So um, the very easiest way to read all of the passages that speak of this is to say, yeah, Joseph and Mary were blessed with additional children after Jesus was born. And, I, and the reason I bring that up is because my, of my question. So why would Jesus put Mary with John, and if, if, if Mary had other sons to take care of her after Jesus' death? We have to admit that there are details we're not aware of as to all of the family factors that may have been in play here, but there's something that God does tell us about the situation, and that is that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. 
So there were, it was even a time where they said, you know, you ought to go down to Jerusalem. There was a festival and, and show people your miracles. You know, you're this big teacher. Shouldn't you be doing that? And Jesus said, my time has not yet come. And the brothers went down on their own. And then a little later, Jesus also went down um, to the festival, but not with his brothers. So he obviously had concern for them and were their thinking. So one possibility is that that the brothers weren't there. Uh, Mary, Mary did show her confidence and trust in, in the Lord by being there with her son on the day of his death. And it's possible the brothers just, they weren't at the right place spiritually. So that Jesus, in thinking of a, now who's going to care for my mother, picked someone who would take care of her you know, spiritually as would be appropriate. We do know, and this is a beautiful part of the story, that that uh, Acts 1 verse 14 has Jesus' brothers mentioned again. So when the Christians were gathering after Jesus had ascended, his brothers were with the disciples and Mary was there as well. And um, the far most likely option for the authorship of James and Jude are that James and Jude were the brothers, the half-brothers of Jesus. So in the end, things turned out very well. So that makes you wonder, like, were there other family circumstances that just made it hard for them? I think the probably easiest is to say they weren't believers at the time. Jesus gave John the responsibility. He was happy to take it. By God's grace, the brothers also came to faith. And we praise God for that. Okay. And, uh, okay, so the words themselves, um, Jesus showing this compassion for his mother. What, what do these words tell us about Jesus? What do they teach us? Maybe the, the biggest stunner is that in the midst of his suffering, he thought about his mother, not himself. And, you know, the Lord, the Lord blesses us with family and they give such gifts to us. And for us to be reminded that the Son of God treasured his mother, uh, which sets a beautiful example for us to consider our parents, even after we have grown up, you know, this most precious gift from God and that we long to serve them um, in gratitude, of course, for the great service that they have given to each of us. Let's go to the next word from Jesus on the cross, Professor. Recorded in both Matthew and Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot in here. Uh, it's spoken in darkness. What did darkness add to the reality of the moment? You know, when we think of darkness, we think of we think of being lost. We think of being abandoned, right? So much of the imagery of Jesus is about being like the light. He's the light of the world. The world itself is, is like in spiritual darkness when they're lost, they're without hope or direction. And it's only through the good news of Christ that you can suddenly see clearly. So it's hard not to think that this darkness that God brought upon the world during this, this period of time uh, reflected the experience that Jesus was was going through at that moment that you know did it have something to do with the uh, the abandonment of God which is the essence of the consequence of our sin that we're separated completely from the love of God there's 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 nothing there's nothing of the love of God that is is touching Jesus life at this moment i think that imagery fits very nicely not to mention the power. This was this was crazy that this would happen, right? But God is so powerful to just suddenly make it dark. 
And this phrase uh, recorded in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, close. Very, very good. <laughs> uh, why recorded in Aramaic? Because the others aren't, the other words, and, and most of the words of Jesus are not, but this is. Can you tell us why? I would say it's hard to know in, like, th there may have been multiple reasons, but I think the one that is most likely contextually is the reaction of those who were hearing him was, I think he's calling Elijah. And you would have had no understanding of why they would have ever thought he was calling Elijah if it had just said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you say it in Aramaic or put it down in writing, and, and Luke is the one, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, is the one who does that, it explains to his readers this connection of misunderstanding on the part of many of the observers of what Jesus was actually saying there. And you're being very gracious in answering these questions that I give you that you can't answer. It'd be just as easy to say, I don't know, Mark, we're not told. <laughs> There's a lot of those that I ask. There are a lot, a lot of things we don't know, yeah. But speculation, and I've talked with many guests about this, the speculation is, is okay to dig deep and, and want to know and see what we can learn from what we are told, context and what we know from history. Absolutely. And, 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 I mean, and to that degree, you know, we can say there may be things we don't know about this, but it, it was put in here for a purpose. And so we presume that the author assumes that the reader will be able to understand why he's doing what he's doing. So I think we can say um, this connects with their misunderstanding. Now, was there you know, something else he was thinking of? That, that we wouldn't be able to say. But I think the, the Eli, Elijah, that's a, that's a good connection to make. And here Jesus addresses God as God as opposed to his father, I I know people find significance there. What what do you say about that? So right, the the father comes back, you know, at the end when he's entrusting his soul to his father. God was always his father in the mystery of the Trinity uh, from from eternity. So to say my God is not to say he wasn't his father, but in so far as Jesus is our substitute, so he was true God and he was true man. Insofar as he was human, God was his God. He was, he was his his human nature was created, right? And so, um, like to Mary on the day of resurrection, I'm going back to my God and your God. Even as the resurrected, victorious God Man, he could properly call his Father his God because he had a human nature. So he is. Um, the sin that he bore for the world uh, was the sin commi committed by humans. And to acknowledge the authority of God as the judge is, is precisely what he is acknowledging here. This is God. God has either forsaken you or he has not forsaken you. And if he has not forsaken you, then you are benefiting from his love in some regard. If he has forsaken you, you are completely separated from his love. And that is eternal hellfire terror. Jesus is making it obvious what he's experiencing here. Okay, I guess, I guess you kind of just answered my next question. What does it mean to be forsaken by God? Anything else to add there? I always had this picture of, of like God turned his back on Jesus. Like you have to do this alone. And, and I think the, probably the, 
it's we would say it's not simply the fact that that um the father isn't assisting him in this process so like there are times where like jesus depended on the father for, for everything uh like the temptations that he had in the wilderness right you know he said i'm not going to make bread because my father's going to decide when i need to have bread and then when that was all done the angels came and strengthened him so you had this relationship as jesus had humbled himself as our substitute where he was authentically dependent on the father so you could say like in one respect well god isn't his father's not helping him out in this one you know he's he's in this on his own i think that's like we'd say it's certainly true because he was abandoned completely so he's not he's receiving nothing from from his father but but I think maybe the even more like laser focus here would be to be abandoned by God is to be completely separated from his love. So like even an unbeliever on this earth is still benefiting from the love of God. Like he causes his the sun to shine on the evil and good, rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? So we're still not separated from the love of God, even if I have blown God off. What's it like? to be completely separated from God's love. Not just that he's ignoring you, but that there is no, it, it, I don't, it's not really, an, it, it is kind of a turn your back on, right? You don't get anything good from me, but that we're viewing it as not just, he's not paying attention to us anymore, but there is a very real disappearance of something that we have enjoyed in our lives. That That's the terror of, of hell, at its heart. There are many other pieces to the hell puzzle, but to not have the love of God at all is something we can't imagine. But Jesus could and didn't just imagine, but experienced. I'd like to share a quote with you from the sainted Professor Deutschlander, if I may, and get your reaction as, as he wrote about this question that Jesus asked God from the cross, why have you forsaken me? He said, he said God wants the answer to that question from us. So I think as yeah, as we reflect on what Jesus is expressing there, um, finally, this was a substitute, wasn't it? And and for us to to recognize that the the pain and the horror that Jesus was experiencing was only experienced because of me. And then for Professor Deutschlander to remind us that this calls for an internal, like as we reflect on this, it, this, is about, this is about me. What have I done that would lead God justly to completely separate me from his love? That is a, it's a sobering, it is a sobering reality which every bit of our sinful flesh fights against. Like we just do not want to acknowledge that that's what we deserve. Because, and, and because of that, we will minimize our sin. Like we'll say, it's not that big a deal if I talk about this person behind their back because the fact is that they ripped me to shreds on Facebook or when, when, I'm, when I'm having an argument with, with, my, with my brother or sister that, well, you know, like everybody does that. Or when I lust a little bit, or there's some pornography that flashes across the screen, and I I enjoy it for for five seconds, or five minutes, or five hours. like like we find ways to say, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. I don't know what else in the Bible would would match this 
or would go beyond this. Let's say there's other things in the Bible that certainly match it, but that would go beyond these words in revealing just what the consequences of my sin against God are. And that drives us to our knees in terror. And the miracle, of course, is that as we are on our knees in terror, it's the hand of Jesus that reaches out to us and lifts us up. You know, I did this because I loved you. The fact that you saw this happen to me means it doesn't happen to you by your, by, by your spirit given faith in me. You know, then all of a sudden I'm just thanking God that, that Jesus was willing to be abandoned. And we are in the season of Lent where we consider the suffering of Jesus. We see him clearly up on that cross for us as our substitute, as you said, should I be glad that God deserted Jesus as, as much as it pains me to see what Jesus went through because of me? Should I be glad he did it, that God did desert him? Because that means, right, that he won't desert me. Absolutely. Our, you know, we aren't, we aren't, um, you know, we don't sympathize. We don't, we're not sad for Jesus in the, you know, in the same way that like you'd be sad for someone who's suffering, like you feel sympathy for them because that's completely missing the point. Like I stand in horror at what my sin brought upon Jesus. Like the negative emotion is one of, of, um, disbelief at what, what I have done, though God has not done anything wrong to me. The, the counter to that, of course, is the, whether you call it disbelief again, but just being blown away now by faith that, that this was, that this was my salvation. That's, um, that's the beautiful, happy, big picture, clear seeing perspective that the thief had. He saw there was something else going on here and it was his salvation. The next word from the cross, I am thirsty. Uh, we are told that Jesus said this to fulfill the scriptures. Why was that so important? Yeah, it could seem random, right? Um, and certainly he wanted a drink at that point. The, the drink he was offered at the beginning um, would have had some kind of a, um, an effect that might make the pain less a little bit, although of course not get rid of it. Um, at this point, that wasn't the issue anymore. And so for Jesus, everything that was written that spoke of the Messiah and promises made about it, this particular one from Psalm 69, it was going to happen because God knew it was going to happen. And he just was telling people about that ahead of time. So for Jesus to live that out and then for the gospel writer to say, um, he did this in order to finish off everything that the scripture said would happen in to the smallest detail is to say God's promises will be kept to their most intricate detail. There is nothing that God is going to let drop in his word. And the I thirst is a perfect example of that. And physically speaking, it's safe to say that you and I have never been this thirsty. I know I haven't. I've been thirsty, but I've never been this thirsty. Is it an exaggeration to say that Jesus was up there dying of thirst? I think the phrase, you know, the um, like we'll, we'll use that phrase yeah. when we're not actually dying from thirst. And um, I think at this point, Jesus 
um, like as far as how crucifixion killed you, if there wasn't any miraculous intervention, you know, you died from asphyxiation rather than dying from thirst. So he was certainly very thirsty, but that would not have been his if the medical doctor checked him out after the fact, the cause of death had he not taken this drink. Um, but, but as far as, you know, the excruciating suffering and all of these different levels of suffering, and then to remember those things were not the suffering, like the suffering was hell to which any of these earthly things that another human being could experience, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't even compare still, um, like the Psalm, you know, so the Psalm that this comes from also speaks about him being scorned and disgraced and shamed and how this was, it just was all part of this package of so mistreated, you'd never believe it, but this is the savior of the world and getting the drink fit the picture of the savior that had been described. And, and some have said that this drink would give him the means to finish saying what he still wanted to say. So him being a human, that I can see that, right? And that might be one of those things where, where you know, could that have had a beneficial effect? He obviously said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, prior to that, with a loud voice. So he right. was, you know, he was able to shout those words that he okay. had enough. So we probably wouldn't make too much of, too much of that. But I mean, would it have, could it have had a positive physical effect? Yeah, I think we'd say, yeah, probably. All right, let's go to the next one, which is uh, which is my favorite. It is finished. I love that word, tetelestai. And my wife listens to Impact from time to time, and she probably knows where I'm going here. <laughs> uh, we've been talking about uh, a new dog in the Genstead house, and, and I want to name our new dog <laughs> Telly. And then people will ask, why is your dog named Telly? And, and I'll say, well, it's short for his real name, which is Tetelestai. And then that gives me the opening. So anyways, uh, can you tell us about this awesome Greek word, Tetelestai? So the, the base word basically means to, um, it has the idea of a goal or an end, like an end goal. So to, um, to finish something, to complete something. And in John, where this word is included in verse uh, 20, in verse 30, in verse 28, it says that after um, everything had been completed in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. So when we think about everything having been completed, well, like what constitutes everything when you're on the cross? I think what you have to say is the purpose for which Jesus went to the cross now all of it had been completely finished. Why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross to suffer for the sins of the world, to take away the sins of the world, to bear the eternal punishment for the sins of the world. And that price, that price had been paid. And so he, 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 he spoke it out. Um, he said, it has been finished. My, my, my work of suffering for the sins of the world is now done. The payment has been satisfied. Nothing left for anyone to do. There is nothing, there is nothing left. Uh, someone put it this way, there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we need to do. And, and someone also put it this way, Professor, uh, these were the most important words spoken by the most important person on the most important day in the history of the world. What it did is revealed what had not been seen by the eye. What had been seen by the eye that day was that of a defeated human being. What had not been seen by the eye was the God-man suffering the consequences for every sin that has ever been committed. 
And that word opened the window into what had just occurred. And then the final words spoken by Jesus from the cross recorded in Luke 23, Father, as you said, back to saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And after he said that, he gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. What do those words teach us about Jesus? One interesting piece to this one is it also is prefaced with the words, and with a loud voice. So the two things we know that he shouted out were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. He wanted everyone to hear this. He wanted them to know the relationship that existed. I suppose he could have prayed a prayer to his father in his head. Like he would not have had to bring everyone else into this conversation of now trust and confidence. What's the blessing of seeing this? The the blessing of seeing this, like first off, is this is what happens when you've done your work. When your work was to pay for the sin of the world and now you are finished, um, what happens next? Father, I entrust my spirit to you. It takes a moment in time that would appear to the eye to be the final nail in the coffin, as it were, of defeat. Like when you breathe your last, the presumption is you lost the battle. People will talk about that. You lost your battle with cancer, whatever it is. By the commentary that Jesus adds, he makes it clear, this is not losing a battle. I'm doing something. This is an active step on my part. The, and then he breathed his last with those words, it indicates also that he controlled his life. We can't do that. We can't think in our heads, now I'm going to die. There are many people who wish that they could think in their heads, now I'm going to die and it would happen when they are suffering terribly. And that has led people to many unfortunate moral choices the lack of control that we recognize, which again is in our desire to have it, which is just pride and to remember again that it's the Lord who determines the length of our days. That lack of control that we recognize in this regard is precisely the opposite of what Jesus as true God had. Complete control, even in the moment of his death, reinforced by the soldiers saying like, or and then Pilate finding out, wait a second, he's dead? No way. Like, that's impossible. This was a miracle. The last thing that happened on the cross was another miracle. And the words he spoke was the kind of headline over what everyone, everyone was going to see next. And I love how Stephen used those same words as he was dying. And, and so isn't it, isn't it appropriate that, that any, any child of God who finds themselves in this situation where they, they, they know the end is coming, that they make this prayer their own like Stephen did. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, and so he calls the Father his Father. The prayer that Jesus taught, our Father, that makes us Jesus' brother. And he calls himself, that we are, you know, we, we are his brother's and sisters. And so to see 
you know, to see our hero walk through that moment of death and to see his perspective on it is to be, while we call God Father for a slightly different reason than Jesus does because we aren't the second person of the Trinity, we call God our Father for another reason. And what a beautiful thought to have in our minds as we breathe our last, that it's God who is on our minds. It is his control. Uh, he is the one who transfers us from death to life. And that something's going to happen to us when we die. There is a part of us that does not go out of existence when we breathe our last. And that, of course, is at the heart of all that we understand about God, his purpose for us and our eternal, and our, our, our eternal joy, that we as humans realize there's more to us than just skin and bones. That's Jesus died for the skin and bones. He died for the soul. He died for all that we are. And the separation, it will be joyful to be set free from our sinful flesh. And the reunion will be joyful when once again we are combined with a new spiritual body that will have none of the weakness or the sin of the former. Words of victory here. And for us, the first step of what will ultimately be a joyful reunion body and soul forever and ever and ever. Amen. Very good. No, no more questions after that. Uh, thank you for your time again today. And uh, I wish you a blessed Lenten season. And let's have you back soon to talk about Palm Sunday. That sounds great. Thank you, Professor Geiger. And folks, I'll leave you with these words from Colossians 2 that we think of with uh, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. It is finished. Listen to what Paul writes. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. God be with you. Thank you for listening to Impact, a podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and pray for this ministry. Impact is new every Monday and all past episodes are available. The better you understand scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.